I'll never forget it. I'd been out wave running. That's what we called it. What do you call those things you ride, wave runners? There's another name for it. Jet skis, that's what it is, jet skis. I'd been out jet skiing with my girlfriend the day before. (laughs) But on this particular Sunday evening, well, because I had been wave running all Sunday, all Saturday, I should say, jet skiing, I was sunburned. My legs were sunburned pretty bad. And my suit pants, the lining of my suit pants was rubbing my sunburn. I'll never forget that. The sticks in my mind. I just graduated not long before that from high school. I'd soon be attending Penview Bible Institute for college. But this Sunday was a special one because on this particular Sunday it was the Sunday before a camp meeting that took place nearby. And on that Sunday evening, there was a whole bunch of visiting preachers in our church. On that Sunday evening, the church was packed. We had an overflow, and even the overflow was full. And the preacher that day was not one of those visiting preachers, but that preacher that Sunday was me. And it was my first time to preach. And I remember all these distinguished preachers in the congregation, and I was scared half to death. And my suit pants were rubbing my sunburn. And I got up to preach, and I testified for several minutes, and I preached my heart out from John 3.16. And I testified, and I preached, and I said everything I could say, and in eight minutes I was done. Some of you wish I'd return to that practice. I want you to look with me to Luke chapter 4 this morning. There's a reason I tell you that story. But look with me to Luke chapter 4. O Lord, the helper of the helpless, the hope of those who are past hope, the Savior of the tempest-tossed, the harbor of the voyagers, the physician of the sick. You know each soul and our prayer, each home and its need. Become to each one of us what we most dearly require, receiving us all into your kingdom, making us children of light, and pour on us your peace and love, O Lord our God. Amen. That prayer is from Basil the Great. And may it be our prayer as well. If you remember from a couple Sundays ago, Jesus in Luke chapter 4 was full of the Spirit, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
where he was tempted by the devil 40 days. And we saw that, I told you a couple weeks ago, that in our temptation, we must flee, we must run to Jesus. Jesus is the one who conquered our adversary. Jesus is the one who stands in our place to defeat the enemy on behalf, on our behalf. And I'm so grateful this morning that we can run to Jesus, aren't you? So grateful for that. And here in Luke's account, after, after Jesus has been tempted and he leaves the wilderness, what takes place next in verse 14 is what I call the return. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now you notice here Luke is again emphasizing the role of the Spirit. That's Luke's great emphasis. In fact, of course, Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. And Luke emphasizes again and again the role of the Spirit. This week I read through the book of Mark. And if you read through the book of Mark, what you'll see in the book of Mark is Mark is always saying immediately, immediately. There's just, there's just a, an intensity to the book of Mark. Immediately, immediately, things are happening. But Luke's emphasis is on the role of the Spirit. And Jesus here returns in the power of the Spirit. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Now he's returning by the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And there he begins his ministry. And Jesus quickly becomes a celebrity of sorts. Now Luke doesn't devote much time to this period of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it's probably about a year. It's, it's often been referred to as the Galilean springtime. And the crowds begin to follow Jesus. The news of his ministry begins to spread. But Jesus isn't a, or was, is not a celebrity who was out to build some kind of platform for himself. Jesus was on a divine mission. He had a mission that he was seeking to fulfill. And as part of that mission, he returns to his hometown, is what we just read about. And when he returned to his hometown, he did what he did every Sabbath day, and that is, he went to the synagogue. He attended services. The synagogue, it was like a Jewish church. And, and there was one in every town. In fact, nearly every town had a synagogue, and what was required to have a synagogue was to have ten men. And once you had ten men, you could begin a synagogue. And, and so in Jerusalem, you had close to 400 synagogues in the time of Jesus. So the main purpose of the synagogue was to educate the people the truths of God's word. And so when they would gather, they would do basically two things. They would pray and they would study God's word as they had it then. In general, they would spend time in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. In fact, they had a program for studying the Pentateuch that it would be taught straight through every three and a half years. So expository preaching is really nothing new. 
Um, and, and so that, that was somewhat of what would go on in the synagogue. But Jesus here returns to Nazareth, and he's going to give the reading. And this is really Jesus' first recorded sermon. Probably not his first sermon, but this is his first recorded sermon. And if you look at verse 16, it says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So he's at his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So just kind of picture the scene for a minute. The hometown boy is back home again. And he's going to preach his first sermon back at his hometown. The crowd has gathered. The synagogue worship would begin with the singing of Psalms 145 to 150. They would sing those hallelujah psalms. And then it'd be followed by the reciting of the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Then they'd follow that up with the 18 benedictions known as the Tephelia. And they would, they would recite those 18 benedictions aloud in succession. And then would come the reading of the scripture. The one who would read the scripture would stand up. The rest were sitting down. And Jesus stood up and they gave him the, prophet, the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, which is near the end of the scroll. So you can imagine there's quite a bit of unrolling that happens with that scroll. So just kind of picture the scene in your mind. It's dramatic. Because Isaiah 61 is messianic prophecy. And Jesus unrolls the scroll. Everyone's eyes are on him. He reads it. And then he sits down. Now, that was the way teachers taught. They, didn't, they read the scripture standing, but the teacher sat down to teach. And so everyone's eyes are fixed on Jesus. They know what he's just read. Isaiah 61 prophesies the coming of the Messiah who would bring the salvation of, God, of our God. A hush fell over the room. Jesus has quoted, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice there those three references to preaching. What would be proclaimed? The Messiah would proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the, the Greek adjective, the adverb adjective that's used there for poor, it has to do with, it means to cower or to bow down timidly. You get the picture 
of someone who, beside the roadway, holding out their cup, begging. But it's more than just financial poverty that the Messiah would proclaim good news to those in financial poverty. It has more to do than that. It speaks of all who are distressed and in trouble for any reason, including sin, and most importantly, sin. It brings to mind what Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount when he, when he talked about those who would be poor in spirit. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You see, the problem with many people is they're not poor in spirit. We have to come to the place where we understand that without Christ, we are spiritually destitute. We have no pretense before God. We are spiritually in poverty without Him. In Isaiah 57, which is just prior to the passage, not, not long before what Jesus read in Isaiah 61, we're told, For thus says the high and lofty one who habits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's what the Messiah would do. He comes to those who are willing to humble themselves and admit their true poverty. In Isaiah 66, which follows the passage that Jesus read, God says, on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So the point is, the emphasis is on a conscious, moral, and spiritual poverty. And Jesus, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but the Messiah has come to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news to the one who is conscious of their spiritual poverty. Some of you have heard John Oswalt speak. He spoke not too long ago at our Bible Methodist combined ministerial. Dr. Oswalt is regarded as the premier scholar on the book of Isaiah. Not, I'm not just saying that from a, a um, you know, our our kind of part of, the, of Christianity. He, he's just regarded as the premier scholar on the book of Isaiah. And I want you to, to listen to what Dr. Oswalt said. He said, who are the poor? Those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. Those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. Those who think that they will never again experience the favor of the Lord or see His just vengeance meted out against those who have misused them. Those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes, sackcloth, and the feigning heaviness of despair. These are they to whom the servant Messiah shouts, Good news. I don't know about you, but that's good news. Amen. That's good news for people like me. The Messiah proclaims good news to the poor. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that He will free you from your physical poverty, although He often does. But it's deliverance from spiritual poverty. God wants to come and deliver you from spiritual poverty. You see, He will proclaim good news to those in spiritual poverty. And He does more than just say good words or hurl, throw words at somebody. No, His words have the power to accomplish what is said. So when, when, when the Messiah proclaims good news to those in spiritual poverty, it's more than just mere words. But Jesus goes on as he's quoting from the prophecy of Isaiah, and he says that the Messiah will proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So who are the captives that the Messiah would proclaim liberty to? Is Jesus talking about literal prisoners? That's what the word would be used for, was prisoners of war. So was the Messiah going to come and set all the Jewish prisoners of war free from prison? No, that's, that's not what the Messiah would do. No, what the Messiah would do would, would be to deliver those who are bound up by the chains of sin that you and I can't set ourselves free from. No matter how hard we try, we can't deliver ourselves, but thank God for the Messiah who has come to set free the prisoner. And if you're bound this morning, you can be free. That's the good news. That, that the Messiah proclaims liberty to the captives. I don't care what addiction you may be bound by, what sin you may be bound by, if you'll come to Jesus and be honest with Jesus and humble yourself at His feet, He has the power to proclaim liberty to the captive. The problem is, far too often people don't want to be honest about their condition. Oh, we like to think of ourselves as being pretty good people. Oh, I've got a few hang-ups here and there, but I, I'm pretty good. I mean, if you don't, you know, I've told you this many times, that if you don't believe me, go ask somebody. I challenge you, go home this afternoon and go up to a stranger and ask them this question. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? I guarantee you they will tell you they're a good person. In fact, that's biblical. Proverbs tells us most everyone will proclaim their own goodness. How do we do that? Well, we justify ourselves. Oh, I do a few bad things, but I am not as bad as a rapist. I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. I mean, yeah, I'm a pretty good person overall. And we like to think of ourselves better than we are. But what we have to understand is if you're bound by sin... You're a prisoner to sin. And only Jesus can set you free. But you first got to be honest about where you're at and the condition you're in. Jesus said he's 
come to proclaim liberty to the captives, and he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the imagery here is the year of Jubilee. After seven sevens, as described in Leviticus 25, the Jews were to have a year of Jubilee. On the, after the 49th year, have a year of Jubilee, and all the prisoners were to be set free. If they had slaves, they were to be set free. Now Israel never did keep the year of Jubilee as they were supposed to. But the Messiah had come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I think Charles Wesley put it best. In all 4,000 tongues to sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. Are you grateful this morning that Jesus Christ can break the power of canceled sin? So Jesus here, he, he comes back to his hometown. He does this reading of Isaiah. He sets down. And again, all the eyes are on him. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll. And he gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, now remember what he's just told him, what he's just read from Isaiah. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is quite the revelation. The Messiah that Israel has been waiting on, they've been longing for his coming and now in his hometown, Jesus in no uncertain terms makes it clear who he is. Today, this scripture, this scripture about proclaiming good news to the poor, about setting free those in captivity, about the year of the Lord's favor, this scripture is fulfilled right now in your presence. That is an amazing revelation. With that revelation, he showed that he was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament was pointing toward. And their initial reaction seems to be pretty good. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. But then notice what happens. Some skeptics start to think, wait a minute here. That guy, that's Joseph's son. We've known him all our lives. Nazareth was a very small town. Everybody knew everybody. They knew Joseph. That, that's, that's Jesus, the kid who grew up here. And he says he's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy? Hold on a minute. In Mark's account, Mark records that they asked, Isn't this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? 
and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. By the way, that's an important passage of Scripture because your Catholics will tell you that Mary was a perpetual virgin. No, Jesus had brothers and sisters. This, he's just the carpenter's son. He's Mary's son. Can't be the Messiah. You see, they liked his miracles. They liked his gracious words. But claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, that's a bridge too far. Maybe he played with some of them when they were kids. Maybe as a carpenter he made some of their furniture. And pretty quick like, their admiration turns to cynicism, and their cynicism turns, as we'll see in a moment, to rage. In verse 23, Jesus cuts right to the heart. And he reveals their self-sufficiency and pride. Verse 23 says, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So remember, they've been hearing what Jesus has been doing in Galilee. And Galilee is only 25 by 40 miles. It, that's not that big of an area. So, you know, here to Pell City. Not that big of an area. And they've heard Jesus is doing some miracles over there in Leeds. Over there in Moody and Irondale. Hey, Jesus, do some miracles here in Tarrant. Yeah, show us some signs, Jesus. Physician, heal yourself. And then Jesus says in verse 25, But in truth, I tell you, there were many, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a famine came over the, all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. You remember the story of Elijah. He'd, been, he'd went to Ahab, showed up at Ahab's court, said, it's not going to rain till I say so. And then he goes by the brook, Shareth, and God keeps the brook flowing, gives him ravens for food. And then you recall how the brook dried up, and God said, go to Zarephath. Now, if you don't know much about biblical geography, you know, Zarephath, okay, yeah, you just keep reading. Just one of those weird names, and you just keep reading the Bible. But Zarephath was quite a ways away. But let me just pause and tell you here for a moment that just because your brook grows dry doesn't mean God has forsaken you or you've forsaken God, necessarily. And the devil's good at saying that to us. But God had a purpose behind that, and we're seeing it now in Luke chapter 4. But God said, go to Zarephath, and Zarephath was in Zidon. This is a Gentile nation. That's the point. It's a Gentile nation. This is where that dear woman 
I say that tongue-in-cheek. Jezebel was from. God says, go to where Jezebel's from, Elijah. And I got a widow there. I'm going to take care of you there. So Elijah has to take off on about a 100-mile journey on foot. And there, God takes care of him with a barrel of meal that never went empty and a jar that never ran dry. You know the story. Then the second story Jesus references is in verse 27. It says, and there, there was many lepers, I thought I had on the screen, I don't. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the, the Syrian. Now you recall this story as well. Naaman is the commander of the army of Syria, Israel's enemy. And the city becomes sick with leprosies. And the king of Syria tells him, go to Israel. There's a prophet there. See if you can be healed. Well, of course, the Israelite king thinks that Syria is simply trying to start a war. But Elisha calms him down and says, send Naaman to me. When Naaman gets there, Elisha doesn't even go out to see him. He just sends a servant out and tells him, go to the Jordan River and dip seven times. You recall the story. <laughs> and Naaman's like, you know what? We've got cleaner rivers back in Syria. I don't want to dip in that dirty old Jordan River. But he finally does and he's healed after dipping seven times. So what's the point in Jesus referencing these stories in Nazareth that day? Well, the point is, God always intended to save people from every nation and ethnic group and language group, not just Israel. As Paul will tell us later in Romans, the Gentiles have been grafted in. You see, Jesus didn't come just for his hometown crowd. Jesus didn't just come just for the Jewish people. Jesus came as the Messiah to offer himself as the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, including the Gentiles whom the Jews hated and those in Nazareth hated. You see, they were full of self-sufficiency and pride. And Jesus, by referencing these two stories, he makes his point very clear. And as soon as he holds up the Gentiles as being more righteous than the Jews, all of a sudden, the people in his hometown were filled with rage. See, Jesus knows how to cut right through our self-sufficiency and pride and get right down to the heart of the issue in our lives. But the way that we sometimes react is the way that Jesus' hometown crew acted. Because, as I said, they were filled with rage. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Augustine said they love truth when it enlightens them, 
but hate tr hates truth when it accuses them. You know, it's, it's one thing to talk about how great the Christian message is. God loves everyone, and, and you can talk about the Christian message, but when the Christian message cuts through to your own heart and reveals your own sinfulness, that's when people's goodwill often turns to wrath. And now the same people that had seen Jesus grow up, the same people who had seen His character firsthand, they never heard Him lie. They never seen Him disobey. They never heard Him say an unkind word. And now this same group of people are so filled with anger that they attempt on the Sabbath day to throw Jesus off a cliff to kill Him. And Jesus had to pass through their midst and go away. What happened? They missed their Savior. That's what happened. He passed by. The Messiah has come. He's the one who was anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor. He's the one to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that same Jesus is here this morning. And He is the good news for us. But don't reject Him. Don't turn Him away. Don't allow Him to pass by. In yesterday's reading, those of you who are reading this book, for Lent. Yesterday's reading, Dr. Lorstorfer wrote this. He said, It is one thing to be in denial, to not look at our life and understand what needs to take place there. It is another thing to deceive ourselves, to look at our lives and be shown by God our sin and still refuse to admit it. Why do we do it? Why would we lie to ourselves about our own need for grace? Pride is a funny thing. Some people have such pride that they refuse to admit they need something. For whatever reason, they need to be self-sufficient. And confession of sin is not self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness comes from the inability to admit you need God's grace. So rather than confess and receive, we profess and deceive. Maybe I need to read that sentence again. So rather than confess and receive, we profess and deceive. This is not about denial. This is about deception. What are the signs of inner deception? Comparing ourselves to others to gain a sense of superiority. Notice we don't typically seek out comparisons which would place us at a disadvantage. Putting others down so we can appear better. Rewriting the spiritual rules so that we always win. Puffed up pride that always points to our goodness. Notice that John says if we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
That's because God has already declared that we all need grace. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means He has already diagnosed us. It is out of our hands. God has put us all in the same boat. And to deny our need is to call God a liar. So what do we need to do? Dr. Lorstorfer says, give up the deception. We don't like to admit who we really are. Because frankly, without Christ, it's ugly. We like to think we're better than we are. But Jesus has a way of cutting right through, through the power of His Spirit, and revealing our true condition. But far too often, people turn Him away and deceive themselves. But I'm here this morning to call out to you once again and say, listen, Jesus has come. And He's come with good news. Good news for the spiritually poor, the spiritually bankrupt. We don't have any money in the spiritual bank. We're poor. Without Christ, we have nothing. But Jesus has good news for the poor. Jesus has good news for the one who is bound by the chains of sin. He can set you free. But you have to be willing to come to Jesus and say, set me free. This could be the year of the Lord's favor for you. This is the day of salvation. Don't let Him pass you by. Don't let Him pass you by. When you stop and you think about that hometown, the people who knew Jesus best, missing, missing their Savior. It's heartbreaking. But I've known many people who sit in church service after church service, Sunday after Sunday, who are missing Him just as badly as those in Nazareth missed Him. Why? Because they deceive themselves. They justify themselves. And they keep hardening their heart. Don't let Him pass you by. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, Lord, we're so grateful that Your plan of salvation included me. We're willing that any should perish, including church-going, self-righteous, self-deceived people. Lord, just as You died for the one out living in what we think of as terrible sin, You died for those in terrible sin in a, on a church pew. And Lord, I pray that You would give us judgment day honesty. I'm going to pause here for just a minute.
tell you something about that scripture Jesus quoted. You go home and you read Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. You find out there's a phrase that Jesus left out when he quoted it. When he read it that day, as Luke records it, there's a phrase he left off. He talks about how the Messiah would come to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, and he would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But there's also a phrase in there about the day of vengeance. And Jesus left it off. And I think the reason why Jesus left it off is because when he came the first time, he didn't come to proclaim vengeance, the vengeance of God. He came to provide salvation. But Scripture tells us there's coming a day when the judge of all the earth will do what's right. And what's right is justice. And our only hope on that day is for Jesus to say, He's mine. He's mine. She's mine. That's my child. And the only way for that to happen is for us today, on the day of salvation, to say, Jesus, I want to be yours. Forgive me. And so, don't wait. Don't let him pass you by on the day of salvation and wait too late until it is the day that God's wrath is poured out on sin once and for all. Father, again we thank you for your mercy. I praise you for your grace. And thank you for offering us this moment in your presence. Your Spirit is speaking right now. And Lord, if there are those with spiritual needs, help them to be honest with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.